0: Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Tony Naylor and I'm a regular contributor to Resident Advisor. Our guest on this week's exchange is the DJ Steve Barker, host of the BBC's legendary cult radio show, On The Wire. Broadcast regionally in Lancashire in the north of England, On The Wire has been running continuously for a remarkable 32 years and in that time it has pushed an uncompromising and at times influential mix of dub reggae, electronic and avant-garde music. In the 1980s, when fans of On The Wild would share cassette tapes of the show way beyond its northern heartland, it played a key role in helping to popularise hip-hop in the UK. It was likewise the first British radio show to play music from Detroit techno artists such as Derek May and Kevin Saunderson, and in the Acid House era it offered crucial early exposure to the heroes of Manchester's rave scene, most notably 808 State and a guy called Gerald. Over the years, On The Wise time slot has jumped around and the internet has helped it reach a new global audience. But in its central purpose, nothing has changed. It still promotes the same mix of pioneering and experimental music with the same enthusiasm. Over the years, On The Wise time slot has jumped around and the internet has helped it reach a new global audience. But in its central purpose, nothing has changed. It still promotes the same mix of pioneering and experimental music with the same undimmed enthusiasm. This is still perhaps the only place on UK radio where in the same two hour time slot you'll hear the latest tracks from Arca or Fatima Al Qadira, next to gems from Fela Kuti, King Tubby and Rhythm and Sound. The importance of that spirit of adventure to several generations of electronic music artists and fans was illustrated by On The Wire's 30th anniversary broadcast which saw Demdak Stare, The Orb and Shackleton provide specially commissioned pieces for the show. On The Wire is, was and remains a unique cultural entity, one which resonates beyond the north of England. Steve, an obvious but nonetheless useful place to start, I suppose, would be with the origins and the birth of On The Wire in 1984. So, as I understand it, you were already working at uh, BBC Radio Lancashire.
1: Well, back in 1984, when we started the show, it actually took the place of uh, a show called Spinoff, which went out, out twice a week. And this uh, BBC manager at the time, who by all appearances looked a kind of quite kind of straight guy, you know, he was, he was a nice chap, nice family man, etc., etc. And he'd been listening to what I'd been doing on, on Spinoff, which wasn't really too much different was from what we started to do on, on the wire. And said, why don't we put this show on a Sunday afternoon and combine the two spin-offs from uh, two hours, make it three hours and go between two and five on a Sunday afternoon. And I thought I was in some kind of psychedelic fourth dimension kind of weirdo dream, you know, I mean, what's going on here, you know? Even so, and it was a very challenging thing thing to do back then, you know, uh, especially for me because I was I was just a punter, basically. I was just doing this as a bit of a laugh because I was, I was a bit of a music fan, you know, and I never thought I'd... Of actually going into radio per se you know so
0: what was your job here then
1: i didn't have a job i was free i've always been freelance all ah, right okay because people have this idea that if you work for the bbc as a dj the driving around in a sports car you know with uh, white tie wheels and, and 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 chick on each arm you know and the, you get paid buttons uh still do actually i mean i get paid ridiculously for me anyway, a small amount of money, which is why I've never been able to do this full-time, you know. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, to, to be offered a, a show at that time, uh, which was basically when hip-hop was just starting and apparently reggae was dead, but I didn't think so, was a great was a great opportunity, you know.
0: So what did you see was lacking nationally or locally that you thought on The Wire... You know, would fulfill uh, what was the space you felt you would move into?
1: Although uh, John Peel had been going uh, out nationally, the rest of Radio One was certainly um, the old smashy and and, and nicey uh, generation. So, Old Peelie, God bless him, he'd yet to be canonised, yeah. I mean, we forget how things were, you know, back then. He'd yet to be canonised. He was put up with. He was in a pigeonhole, late-night pigeonhole, etc., etc. And although I like some of the stuff that uh, uh, Peely played, you know, I, I thought, well, he didn't do enough of some other things, which was like new American dance music, like he, he tended not not to touch. Now, there might have been a few pirates doing that around, uh, around the time. There certainly were very few here. So I, I felt we were able to go into some newer areas whilst carrying on some of those traditions that, uh, that Peely and, and other notables really back in, in the 70s started out, out with like basically playing reggae which is again very rarely heard these days but some names now have gone by, you know like uh, Tommy Vance played reggae on radio of course D- Dave Rodigan had shows back then but it was always seen as a kind of outside of music, uh, thank goodness. So it was, it was basically this like collision of music that we were able to uh, bring with on the way. The first, um, on that first show, it was Adrian Sherwood and uh, Keith LeBlanc. And of course, uh, Adrian had just met Keith and the whole kind of Sugar Hill gang lot in New York at um, a new music seminar. And the whole kind of new tech head and Fats comic thing kind of started off then. And not only was I able to play that, I was able to get a little bit involved in that as well. So maybe more about that later on. Yeah, we'll come
0: to that in a sec. There's quite a spiky paragraph on the uh, the On The Wire website, talking both about kind of the dismal mm. nature of Radio 1's mainstream output at the mm. time, but also about how you felt the London Dance Mafia, is your term for mm. it, We're kind of behind the times then. Yeah. Um, so there was an oppositional sense of you doing something different uh, from a northern perspective particularly, did you think? In yeah, terms uh, of yeah. The club music we're yeah. pushing.
1: It's not often recognised in, in, in the UK as such. It's not restated in, enough, but the north's always been a really, really st- uh, strong centre in the sport of uh, uh, black music black American music, uh, right back from the uh, 40s and, uh, and 50s, right back when some of the kind of blues and R&B stars used to come through and drop into Manchester, maybe Birmingham, go straight on to uh, Europe, not many other people. The DJ scene in uh, the UK with uh, the Twisted Wheel, where my old Paul uh, Rodgers was so uh, influential. The whole kind of Wiggins casino thing. We were almost kind of uh, basking in in being outliers and and, and outcasts. Were were really li- liking this music. Uh, there's a bit of that to it, you know. Well, you get on with it, you know, down in wherever it is. But we'll do it here. Thank you very much. You know, we'll get on with what we've always done, like really well. And uh, I suppose I move from that. To, uh, to move from that sense that position so
0: 1984 you love reggae you love hip-hop you love early new york club music mm. american club music what have been your musical education and your your enthusiasms prior to that because you trained as a journalist and then you'd gone into some some music journalism i think in 1967 you interviewed Jimi hendrix didn't you as that's one right. of your first job so yeah, yeah. you'd maintained an interest What what were you doing for work and what was your what was your musical passion at the time?
1: I mean, musical passion goes back. I was thinking about this the other day, actually. Uh, um, and uh, I remember being at school when I was about 13 or 14, at Nelson Grammar School, with a mate of mine. And we were kind of... I think, I think the Beatles might have been kind of relatively important, but we knew that there was a lot of pop music at the time, in the early 60s, being covered in the UK that wasn't actually real pop music. It was covers of American pop music, which wasn't pop music. It was that thing called Rhythm and Blues. And we we, we started to get into this stuff. And I suppose the first artist I, 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 that really kind of... that struck me was... Uh, that put fear of God into me, really, was uh, Ray Charles. And that's when he was starting to do some of the more kind of crossover stuff as well. So it was easy for me to buy some stuff that my parents would put up with while still time, you know, listening to like the hardcore Ra- Ray Charles stuff. <laughs> and people used to tell me like terrible stories about Ray Charles drug-taking excesses, which, you know, was a bit exotic for me when I was like a 13, 14-year-old in the misty valleys of northeast La- Lancashire. And it kind of, and it, and it kind of progressed. Uh, it, like when you hit upon a kind of centre of music, then it begins to flower outwards doesn't it you look at for influences here that well i was inquisitive so i'd look for things around it so i got into like black vocal groups and i started going backwards and, and, and like being into um, getting started to getting into chicago blues but then even deeper into country blues and if, and if i i was ever on the desert island at least four or five of my tunes would definitely be kind of pre-war country blues tunes, <laughs> and that was like what I was doing then. Like a friend of mine and me, like snuck out of school one day and we went to Manchester to the Free Trade Hall in 1964. I think we missed a French lesson uh, to see the American Folk Blues Festival. Well, that was Howling Wolf. Sonny Boy Williamson, Sleepy John Estes, Willie Dixon, Lightning Hopkins. I mean, when you're 16 and you see stuff like that, you know, and there was nobody in the audience who had a free trade. Hall. It, was about, it was about a tenth full. They were like these university students, like crocheted veils, smoking clay pipes, you know. It was a total <laughs> knockout, you know. I mean, how can these experiences not change, you know. But when Jimi Hendrix arrived, going back to your kind of point he made, and I, I was doing a, a, a journalism course in uh, London at the Regent Street Polytechnic, now University of Westminster. Uh, we were putting together a, a, a magazine, and uh, people saying, what do you want to do? I said, I fancy interviewing this guy who's got this record out, you know, Hey Joe, and uh, that's when I went to see Jimi Hendrix, between Hey Joe and Purple Haze, which is an experience for an 18-year-old, yeah.
0: And so you were making your living how then, having discussed the, uh, the parlous finances of uh, the regional DJ?
1: At that stage, I mean, although I was relatively educated... Uh, I suppose, because I'd been to grammar school and been to college and then went on to university, I I, I was just doing... uh, I I didn't want to do, um, like, a house journalism job. I I worked for for a while at at university on a magazine called Unit, and Tony Elliott was the editor who went on, of course, to launch Time Out, and he offered me a a job in... um, in the northwest timeout, and uh, and i said no i didn't want it i, I didn't have a car so i couldn't get to the office basically but it folded about six weeks later so i was just doing i was just doing labouring jobs right until uh, i could get a job in what was the then the, the civil service in uh, in liverpool uh, i worked there for a few years but then uh, went to london in the middle 70s like in 75 went to london in fact it a funny story actually when when i got to london because uh, i have been there about two weeks and a mate of mine called me up and he said, uh, he said, there's a friend of mine uh, starting a band. You might you might want to see them. He's managing this band. And um, do I come round? It's, uh, it's Redline Square, this pub at Redline Square. It's a uh, University of London gig. I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll come round. I've got nothing to do. You know, I was like alone in London. I, I just started this work. So I went round and uh, I met my mate, and we went round to the gig. And he introduced me to his mate, uh, Steve. This is Malcolm McLaren, <laughs> <laughs> and it was a. And we saw the second. He was a second Sex Pistols gig. It was at Red Lion Square. It was like it was terrible, you know. I, I, <laughs> they they, 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 were, they were they were supporting this also horrible pub rock band called Rugalator, who you probably maybe have heard of. But uh, that, that was another kind of, it, it's almost like a zellig, you know. So I was performing this zellig kind of, uh, who's, who's that up there with Steve? Oh, it's uh, the Sex Pistols. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, throughout this time then you were maintaining this kind of watching brief over black American music and the various mutations of it, presumably.
1: That's right. And, and, and uh, the reason I mentioned working in London is I, I worked in Labrack Grove Right. In 1975, and you know, if you wanted to be in a place where the actual sound of the streets was reggae, it was the mid 70s in London, you know. And uh I so was there. Jeff Travis opened Rough Trade shop just up up the road from where I worked. And I used to go in there. I remember buying the complete set of Bessie Smith vinyl records in because uh, he used to do a roaring trade in uh, in secondhand vinyl. And buying stuff up there, and I think it was I may very well have been Honest John's because he's been along around a long time, but my first kind of uh, uh, strayed into my first uh, reggae, as such, with like Burning Spear and uh, and what have you at the time.
0: Yeah. So by the time the radio show comes into being, then this is kind of something you've been building up to. That's right. For years, in terms of yeah being passionate about what you wanted to play and having very fixed ideas about the stuff which was underexposed yeah the first few weeks of the show were quite interesting in terms of you mentioned you had adrian sherwood in first week Depeche mode in the second week who were already kind of massive at the time they were
1: they all came in it was fantastic and lee
0: scratch perry yeah week three
1: yeah he was incredible Depeche mode came in all of the band came in i had them all in front of me who were chatting they were really nice like young chaps you know but there were thousands of girls up the road. you know, and They never expected to be at the BBC station. But they were really sweet. And uh, the reason they came in is because uh, uh, I think Adrian Sherwood, I think he'd just done or was perhaps just working on uh, a remix for one of them. But also, I mean, Daniel Miller still had, he was still hands on. And Daniel Miller's like a genuine, like, brilliant geezer, you know, and, and not very often mentioned in music business and music history in the UK but he's like top guy and uh, I think he had something to do with it as as well, yeah, but and then Lee Perry, who I just sent a birthday card to the other week his (laughs) 80th birthday, yeah
0: Did that feel like a bit of a coup? I mean obviously you're from Lancashire, this is not the metropolis you know this this is even kind of for Mancunians this Blackburn is a kind of you know a satellite town a mill town which many people wouldn't go to I mean did you feel like you were achieving something quite special by getting people out to Blackburn essentially
1: well yeah I mean I I think we were quite proud of what we were doing because it was edgy we thought we were doing edgy stuff it wasn't having Lee Perry on radio. it was having Lee Perry live on radio for three hours
0: (laughs) He with was, everything he, that could he, go wrong there. He was
1: live he was live on radio for three hours, right? And uh Roger Eagle was was on there trying to interview him, of course, which was impossible. And he was showing Lee these records and Lee couldn't remember these records he made. Like he, he had all Roger had this fantastic collection of Lee Perry seven inches, you know, on like loads of labels, including Lopester and Blackheart, but all, all other labels. And Lee was looking at them, he was putting ticks, he had he had this felt-tip pen, he was putting ticks on the labels of the ones he remembered, but most of me couldn't even remember.
0: <laughs> well, He's
1: younger now than he was then.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, he was quite lucid, actually. He was on the show recently, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. He seemed quite together, comparatively.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So, dub reggae, and we'll come to kind of why you love that mm. later, perhaps. But you're playing a lot of hip-hop at the time, which, I mean, that was kind of the time I remember the show, I think the first kind of 87 around that time Mm. and for me i mean playing things like just ice and krs1 you know i certainly don't remember hearing those anywhere else Mm. and similarly you were playing kind of bleep techno stuff from sheffield and also first kind of u.s techno records that i'd certainly heard in this country Mm. by this point you were already (laughs) in your 30s yeah i mean were you enjoying any of that music as a clubber and as a club dj or were you enjoying it as a kind of listener at home in lancashire
1: in multiple ways really because i i've i've never done if you get a gig as a radio dj it's easy especially from what i do because basically i produce and present and i can select my own music I'm getting buddy like there's nobody interrupting like the life cycle you know of the yeah. thought to execution and 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 that's it if you're a dj dj in a club it's tough you know f- uh, for uh, for me until you make it and then a lot of people kind of Say it's an easy ride once you've actually made it, because you get sloppy. But, <laughs> but to build that, to get the gigs, and to get the reputation, and to get your skills together, because I, I was never interested in seamlessly running through. You know, I was off a bang mixer. You know, I was never interested in seamlessly matching the BPMs and, and, and what's <laughs> I mean, some you could explain it to me later, Terry, but I still don't understand that. I still don't understand that. Although I've done like live, I've done DJ gigs all over festivals, and uh, certainly when I was living in China, I did quite a lot. I've, n- I've never actually been at a live DJ. Yeah. I've just, uh, and so in terms of playing stuff on radio, like playing live never informed what I did on radio. Yeah. yeah. And as for playing stuff at home, all my children grew up to the, and slept to the base of, uh, <laughs> the throbbing because the bass never wakes you up <laughs> <laughs> the but, lullaby sound the yeah, reggae and No, exactly, uh, techno ex- ex- exactly but uh, mostly I like where I play I, I enjoy the stuff I play but and and very rarely do I think oh, I, I play this because I think it needs to be played I, to one side of me actually thinking oh this is a really cool tune or <laughs> this is fantastic, or or whatever it is, you know. Whereas I, th- I think most, and, and I think that's something to do with, uh, you know, I do t- two or three. I I've used to do three hours a week. Now I do two hours a week. It's, there's so much music, you easily fill a two-hour show, you know, with new music every week. Always have been able to. So, uh, so you've got to fill the show, haven't you? You've got to fill the show, and they've got commercial pressures and the stuff that they feel has got to need to be. There's, there's a whole set of reasons, apart from me actually liking the tune. But I think I think what sets this program apart from with what I do and what my colleagues do who contribute to the show, is we love the music we play, full stop, that's it. You know.
0: I mean, as a punter, were you out in clubs? Were you seeing how no. dance music was functioning? I mean, Blackburn at the time was kind of a real center for rave culture and obviously Manchester was, but you were kind of outside of that then, despite the well, fact you were popularizing a lot of that music.
1: Yeah, well, at the time, as, as you quite rightly say, I was, I was knocking on, wasn't I, really? We yeah. <laughs> yeah. should point, be, bit, what's your point
0: bit, out that you're now 68. 68, yeah.
1: 68, yeah. Uh, at the time, I was in the mid-thirties, and I had like, a bunch of young children. I did do gigs. Yeah, I had some regular gigs, and I, thought, I found mostly bore, quite boring, uh, really, <laughs> uh, because I did some regular gigs just to get paid. Because I didn't have, you know, we didn't have any money as a, fa- a family. But then I did some gigs that were great. Like we put some gigs on at the King George's Hall, and this was time that this uh, is the time that raves were being held all over East Lancashire, yeah. And we put like two massive gigs on at uh, the King George's Hall. And, like over a thousand turned up. The first one, it was absolutely rocking. That was uh, and that was me and Andy Madhatter Holmes from Manchester. He's playing acid and i was playing a bit of acid and then we had this uh, my wife was running a, a girl dj crew back in the middle 80s called wow hi-fi and they played as well and it was fantastic they went re- and that was uh, what was that called uh, the slammer it was called and then we ran one called the cooler but somebody got stabbed and so we couldn't do any more that was it you know we it was they were like really the top like uh gigs but you know, they did, and I thought I can't do this. You know, what am I doing? Thirty-five years, whatever it was. You know, thirty-six. You know, stabbings in the house, rather stay at home and watch Dallas or whatever. <laughs> you know, whatever was happening in nineteen eighty-six. You know,
0: I'm asking that question in part because you mentioned John Peel earlier. Now, the the obvious comparison is always made. Uh, with on the wire is if people want to kind of describe it to somebody who doesn't know it they kind of go it's you know it's it's the lancastrian john peel yeah. it's, it's it's similar in in style now i know john peel was kind of pivotal in helping the show stay on the air a couple of times when mm. it was threatened with the mm. uh, closure but it always struck me that one way in which your show was very different to john peel was that you seemed to understand dance music in a way that he certainly didn't. Mm. You know, he would play a lot of dance music which often I think was kind of sonically interesting but verged on kind of novelty records. Mm. Whereas you seem to have a deeper kind of understanding for the functionality of those records and the joy of those records and the soulfulness of those records and and quite why they worked in a club context.
1: Yeah, uh, well, part of that, I, mean, I think there's a multiple facets in terms of response to, uh, to that. I mean, n- number one, it's, uh, it's from my uh, appreciation, I think, uh, well, I, I claim a kind of an appreciation of, of, of black music going back, you know, to the 20s, 30s, to kind of uh, jazz era or even pre-jazz era. Of course, it's, that's the kind of music I love. So basically, I'm understanding, trying to understand where the music's actually come from. That's number one. You know, and when you listen to Muddy Waters, people don't realize Muddy Waters actually is dance music. Yeah? <laughs> That's what people used to dance to in blues, you know, in, in, in blues dances. Uh, the other thing was that hip-hop, and to a certain extent, uh, but much more subtly, techno, hip-hop was a very political language. Yeah? It, was, it was political you know when you say there's more we we're talking earlier on before this interview started about you know swearing on the radio. I remember playing a lot of hip hop for a number of years, and there was no swearing in that. There didn't have to be, and it was highly charged politically. Mm. You know, it was only a little bit later that uh, that you know in in terms of the late perhaps the late 80s that some misogyny and bad language what we understand commonly as bad language, began to creep into it. So I, I always thought that, you know, that, that playing hip-hop on radio was a political statement, yeah, as, as as much as anything else. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I think I understood that the party was actually playing in, in, in black culture at the time, and, and to some extent, it's, a lot of that's been perverted now, but it's had an incredible impact, isn't it? Nobody could have actually forecast what impact it would have. I remember a great gig I went to, actually, and it was... Uh, just to describe how how it, how it was back in like 1982, 83, I got a call uh, from David Toop, who's a good friend of mine, who wrote some like seminal track, early tracks on hip hop, and he says, "Oh, African Barter's playing in London, Do you want to come and see?" And I went down with David and uh, and Sue Stewart and, and another early writer on like street culture. Should uh, should we say? And they did a brilliant magazine together called Collusion. About five or six issues, it was a fantastic magazine, precursor to The Wire. We saw Africa Barter and DJ Jazzy Joyce, and, and there there's a few others on there with some breakdancers and what have you. And they were at the Shaw Theatre on uh, on Euston Road. About 200 people fit into this theatre. It was fantastic, and it was and it was seen like as a, a social, the first trickle that turned into a tsunami of a kind of global a you know, cultural scene. It was like a, a social impact, you know, this is what's happening, you know. And, and, and it was... It, 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 you felt like you should have been a social worker or anthropologist to attend, you know. not somebody who was into tunes, you know. <laughs> but there were there were a few hip black kids there as as well as me and uh, David and, and Sue standing out, and, stroking your collective base, uh, cerebral, <laughs> yeah, yeah, spectacle. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, that, that's an interesting point. You know, the whole the whole impact of US black culture on British underground music. It strikes me. Maybe you were aware of this at the time, maybe you weren't. But On The Wire, and then a few other kind of DJs around Manchester and the North West, so Stu Allen on Piccadilly, Spin Masters on Sunset when that got off the ground, and, and a few other people. There did seem to be this kind of shift as Acid House got into gear, whereby you were moving away from, I suppose, a traditional public school educated white, you know, middle and upper class enemy reading sense of alternative. Culture was, and suddenly in the Northwest, particularly, there was this kind of self sustaining underground club music culture. Did you feel at the time you were part of that? Did you feel that shift? I mean, in retrospect, to me, it seemed like a very exciting time. I'm probably, as I say, retrospectively superimposing some kind of analysis on it, but you know, it did feel as if there was a shift to a kind of more respect and more space for, I suppose, working class northern club culture and music culture, which obviously, as you said earlier, had always looked back or looked across the Atlantic to America for inspiration.
1: You did feel part of it, certainly, and and you felt like something was happening because part of that change... Of course, was the movement out of the studio into the bedroom in terms of creating a lot of this stuff? Because although you know people like say you mentioned Data 88 earlier and Gerald actually moved into the studio eventually. Yeah. Initially, you know what a lot of what they were doing was really quite crude. <laughs> should we uh, should we say? And so you you could you could see elements of hip hop, a multiple that what certainly was a nuance of hip hop wasn't it kind of taking the means into your own control yeah under control yeah. and producing something new from it and saying basically fuck you you know this is what we're doing yeah you know, you know uh, th- there wasn't any compromise which i thought that like, was really interesting to, uh, with that music I-, I think there's an inevitability that that kind of plays out because like as much as i hate corporate rock music or soft rock i hate corporate hip hop you know, and I, and I can't play it. And as, as, as much as uh, I hated uh, Tamla Motown at, at one time, although, and I now quite like it, you know, <laughs> there's so much of, of that. We, we're getting on to the kind of the way music is absorbed into the mainstream and, and kind of what happens. What happens to it, don't don't we really? And you actually began to see that in a number of different ways. And interestingly enough, the first way you began to notice that wasn't the music being absorbed into the mainstream ire, into whatever the labels that were going at the time, BMG, EMI, you know, blah, blah, Warners. It was the drugs, wasn't it? The real commercialization of, of, of a lot of this music, certainly house music, came through drug dealers, didn't it? That's the way it happened. Go
0: on, explain that as a theory. Well, people
1: actually started to use the music, the popularity of the music, to make money from drugs. Simply stated. So you think the
0: music took on an increasingly kind of functional, dumbed-down form then, because obviously that widened the market for... Exactly. (laughs) drugs essentially
1: exactly that's that's what i do think <laughs> so so basically you know the the notion of a movement then then gets kind of splintered splintered down and what you're left with uh which i think is the real key thing uh, for any kind of music is individuals you know individuals stand out and individuals stand proud through all that you know and it doesn't matter how any of that kind of uh the impacts of any of that elsewhere else, but individuals can stay true, or uh, uh, the, the most remarkable individuals stay true to the kind of their visions, you know, of of the music. So if you look at that, how she mentioned, like you know, Derek May, uh, Kevin Saunders, and Juan Atkins, people like that, you know, they actually saw it saw it through. You know, the, the, we could still see them, you know, as some of the uh, key players, couldn't we? You know,
0: at this time. You mentioned some of the parties you did around the Mm -hmm. radio show, but I mean, were you aware of how kind of big On The Wire was? I mean, I found this fascinating, which I didn't know, but you put a fall show on at Clitheroe Castle. Yeah. So to describe that for people, it's a castle, obviously, but in a a small market town in the middle of Lancashire, and 2,000 people turn up to that. Yeah. And then you did what now seems, I suppose, an era-defining show at the Ritz in Manchester in 1988, December, I think <laughs> this was. So the lineup for this, which is kind of incredible, was Adrian Sherwood, Gary Clayle, 8 to 8 State, a guy called Gerald, and Nana Cherry, and probably some other people on the bill as well who have forgotten. Yeah. Mark um, Stewart
1: was there. Uh, Mark uh, Stewart, right. Well, little Annie was there. Uh, right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you you had the ability to put on these, these shows, you know, you were still on a, a relatively small regional radio station. Were you aware of, you know, these cassettes being swapped and the word spreading? You must have got some sense of that just from 2,000 people turning up to watch The Fall, I suppose, in Clitheroe.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, that was a. I cr- I mean, we didn't know how that would go because the, the Clitheroe Castle, it, it's a kind of natural bowl. It, it, it's on a hill and it rolls down in, and, and then into a kind of arena. So it, it's it's a beautiful setting, actually but we said we'd go out live go, going out live oh so you
0: broadcast it. the show oh yeah oh, right. it's like
1: I can, I, yeah, I've, I've still got I've got the tapes
0: right, Nobody,
1: right. nobody's asked to put it out it's incredible it's like BBC you've, you've heard all these shitty fall tapes <laughs> we, we've got a BBC broadcast quality from 1986 <laughs> I think it was yeah 30 years ago there are about
0: 176 fall albums there, no, either, are, so but, you know the,
1: but this is the best one <laughs> but anyway so putting Smithy on live is a bit like putting uh uh, Perry on yeah. Now, isn't it? Uh, So, yeah, we were going to do the full. So, the thing about there's a gig, you know, they're going to play a gig and a few people might turn up. Uh, 2000 or oh, it was like 2000, nearly 2,500 people turned up. And there was one policeman <laughs> <laughs> who managed to wander in. There was no trouble whatsoever. But so some of the Sunday traders in town took a, a, a few bob, and it went off uh, sweetly, you know. And then, funny enough, we did uh, another gig about two months later and it was the uh we put on the melatones who were like a favorite band of ours from uh liverpool and uh there's about 400 people there but there's like 15 or 20 places there's like a brigade <laughs> or whatever <laughs> it's like it's gonna happen again appreciation of what, you know, what 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 the potential was but uh we just wanted to put the bands on on, on life so that uh took us by Surprised, we didn't think there'd be uh, that many people.
0: And things like the Ritz gig, you must have felt that you were kind of really in the eye of a storm there to a degree. And it was interesting, I suppose, with that lineup, you were kind of mixing far harder stuff, the kind of you know, on you sound end of things with A2X State and Gerald, who were already kind of you know, well known rave uh, acts at the time.
1: That was one of my best DJ moments if I could take a break, there. So because <laughs> because just one moment, you know, you can just capture this one moment. I DJed as well on that one, uh, and and I did like this little set, and I was playing some house thing at the time. It was like might be new, a new groove tune or something like that, and I thought, oh fuck this, let's drop this King Tubby, you know, <laughs> and and, and, I, and you know the uh, the dance floor at the Ritz was like a sprung dance floor, yeah. it was a beautiful dance floor. The dance floor was full, yeah. Uh drop this to King Toby, nobody left the dance floor. First and only time I've ever dropped a King Toby, <laughs> nobody's ever left the dan- So these I, I said, these are educated attendees at this gig.
0: <laughs> so on the wire it already fulfilled its purpose then, you now, know, uh, a, a new right. educated uh, crowd.
1: That's right. It was a bit of a, a, a challenge, especially as as you say with uh, with Adrian doing this fairly hot, you know, hard edged, hardcore left field. You know, industrial funk stuff, you know, with uh, Gary Clay. I was especially pleased that Nana came actually because Nana and Adrian were old friends, but Nana was played a Bomb in the Base gig across town at the International. <laughs> she came and did, and she was eight months pregnant. She was, she was. She came over and did, like, a 25-minute 20, set for, uh, for us with Cameron and, and, and all, everybody. You know? So
0: contractually,
1: that would not be allowed to happen these days, no. would it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, it, we knew at that stage, well, you know, this is stupid. Uh, we, yeah. But uh, it, it was great. It was great looking back. We've still got all that on tape as well.
0: Yeah, there needs yeah. to be a kind of slew of releases of all That's this right. stuff, doesn't think there, so. really? Yeah. yeah. Just to talk about kind of the way the show works a little bit because I Mm. think that's interesting in itself. Obviously now it's online and you have this uh, wider audience geographically than you've ever had, but you've retained a very distinct sense of place and locality with it. Mm. Michael Fenny-Fenton, when he comes in to the studio as he does in each show, will talk about, you know, world music gigs in village halls around Lancashire. Yeah. And uh, you flagged up recently at an experimental music festival in Blackpool, which yeah. I would not have heard of anywhere else. Mm. Is that you fulfilling your remit for the BBC as a local music programme or is that you in an increasingly globalised world actually thinking that retaining some sense of locality and celebrating the small but important things that are happening in Lancashire is still very important
1: yeah we've always been proud to broadcast from lancashire fenny has a a blackburn stroke darwin accent and my accent might have been rounded a bit but i'm still uh, from lancashire i'm I'm proud to be from uh, uh, lancashire so that's the prime reason that's the primary reason the other stuff follows on i like uh, fenny to be able to contribute because he has a unique view and he has a fresh view and and he doesn't come to music he comes to music purely as a punter he he doesn't read he doesn't read any music magazines and, and so he reacts to the music purely as he, as he hears it you know and to some extent that's what I do I'm not a mute I'd like to be a musician but I'm not a musician and so I couldn't really tell you anything about music at all which uh, some people won't be surprised to hear but um I I just come to music from the kind of pure experiential. You know, how does this make me feel? You know, uh, you know that kind of uh, response. So it's not like a a, a too much of a conscious thing. It's something we've actually developed from being proud to be from Lancashire. Now it's funny because a lot of the people on the station here never even heard of on the wire. You know, they don't (laughs) know what they've got. You know, because it doesn't really fit in that's another battle you know to have because uh, when you think about the way the bbc local radio is 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 constructed and i think uh, it, this is reflected in bbc national radio that new controller said recently there's too much data you know there's too much data and I, and i agree with him but you know it's ridden with like research isn't it and demographics and and this is how it, how it happens here and there's there's very little kind of soul, off-the-cuff choices or surprising juxtapositions. There's none of that. You know, it's all going to be kind of smooth, expected, familiar. And so to some extent, you could begin to kind of see our philosophy is, you know, not smooth, not expected, <laughs> not familiar, or whatever the proper words are, you know, the, the antonyms to, to those things that, that define broadcasting that would appeal to... Uh, generally managers of all radio are frightened and understandably so of people switching off and whereas what they should be doing is looking for people to switch on <laughs> you know yeah.
0: and what were this focus group now and were you know audience figures watched throughout the two hours i suppose yeah. when you and Fanny are talking about that world music gig yeah. in a small village hall in darwin that would be a dangerous moment for anybody analyzing that data, wouldn't it? Because, you know, the expectation would be then that the, the bloke listening in, uh, in Hungary is <laughs> yeah. going to turn off at that point because he can't get to that gig in Darwin. But I think people relish that sense of place.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think that's true. But also it's a radio show where we play a lot of stuff. And I think a lot of people listen to on the wire know that they're going to tune in and they're not going to like some of the stuff. And And that was what Peel did as well. Yeah. Uh, give him credit. He, he knew that some people weren't going to like some of the stuff, but he, but he knew by the same score that there might be one tune that he could play that might change somebody's life. <laughs> you know, because that's what you did. You took risks. You know, to some extent, that's that's been a, a kind of theme through uh what we've actually done also it's it's by the seat of our pants i never have a playlist i've actually got a playlist tonight because i'm doing a, a special uh, a randy's uh, part one of a randy special reggae special with clive chin introducing all the tunes because i got him to do it in uh, in brooklyn so he's introducing all the tunes we're cutting it in here right uh, but generally i just bring in a bunch of stuff i've put on uh on my laptop or CDs in the bag or uh, vinyl or whatever, and I look at it like half an hour before I start, I say, what should I start with? So, you know, it, it's like the, it's t- the total converse of, like, normal radio, you know.
0: You mentioned the culture at the BBC there. As I understand it, the show's been seriously under threat twice, I think, was it in the 90s and then again in 2012? Yeah. yeah. So what saved it and how safe is it now do you think I mean do you feel that you're in a position now where you are free to continue in this vein in perpetuity <laughs> as long as you wish to or is there always that yeah, kind of yeah. cloud hanging over yeah. that, that
1: you know it, it may was, end it was two very distinct reasons the the one in the early 90s was uh, the guy who put on the wire on in the first place actually left and we then we got a new manager and, um, and he was young thrust in kind of out of the BBC corporate pod of the time and uh, I, I kept passing him in the corridor and he says oh I'll listen soon I said have you listened and he said no I'm going to listen soon and it, I, I, I believe me I hadn't listened actually and um, I passed him one day and and, uh, and he looked a little bit hesitant and I said have you listened and he, and he said mm, yeah it wasn't what I expected <laughs> and because I was like 10 years older than him or, or even maybe even 20 years older than him I don't know he more or less expected some like he expected he'd die and, and stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, and so it became part of uh, the thing. He wanted me to change uh, program. He, he wanted me to do an hour or something. something like it. basically it was, he, he was he was cutting the show because. But the big mistake he made was he also wanted he also wanted to cut church news. We became a co cool celebra along with like the church program. So the Bishop of Blackburn, you know, I thought this was just terrible, and and for me, I got like this. There's some people supporters in like the music in, industry biz at that time. That indie biz, fantastic. John Peel, people like Laurie, who does the BBC show. Laurie Taylor, is it? He he did something on on race mentions on radio, and then uh, this guy wrote a piece in the Independent. About about us, that appeared on the same day that the BBC board met in Manchester, and um, on the wire had actually finished. We'd done our last on the wire on the Sunday, and the manager was called to the BBC board and told to keep on the wire because it was, uh, and there was a press release issued said it was a unique BBC product and also had to keep the kind of church program and so we actually did our last program on the Sunday and then we came back the following <laughs> <laughs> the, the following week so it, it, it was BBC board who took the decision to, to, to keep on the wire. so you, you know you can't argue with that can you really the board took the decision the following one was just like a few years ago but this was in the move really the pressure general pressure on on bbc budgets and i think there was a really a lot of pressure on managers to do away with uh, music programs the manager here kept to his great credit he did a bit of kind of juggling here and there uh, but he didn't get rid of any of the uh Specialist music programs, because we've got quite a few. Unusually, you know, we've got a folk program, we've got a blues program. There's a country program, so there's quite a few, there's quite a few different uh, 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 specialists, and we are specialists, of course. We, are. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> I don't know what we are. Very really, really it.
0: Does it matter when it's broadcast? I mean, obviously, you go now; it's midnight till two a.m. on a Saturday night, Sunday morning. Would you like a more accessible time slot, or has that kind of gone by the wayside now? And
1: to be realistic, it, it has gone by the wayside. Uh, if, we, if we go back right to when we first went out, we went out on a Sunday afternoon between 2 and 5 on FM only. Now, that's a dream time for radio, you know, because basically what do people do on Sunday? I mean, our kind of target audience, and I hesitate to use the expression, but
0: at that time... It, Lest you be pressed to yeah, explain what that is. Whatever it
1: is, but, but generally people... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know they've gone out to club night before or they've, they've stayed up late on Saturday night you know and on Sunday it's a relaxing day and it so they're not going to do a lot they might go down and do a bit of uh, shopping like more now than it used to be I suppose but people ju- just chilled out on Sunday didn't they and that's what that's what people loved at the show you know the there's something to, they never expected it and also um, a mate of mine Gary Hickson used to run a, a show directly after, after on the wire called Big Beat and he carried on with like a lot of dance music as well so it was like five hours of like totally rocking radio it was like unbelievable you know we would never go back to that in terms of live radio because uh because like footballs changed, hasn't it since then? You know, football like all footballs on a Sunday afternoon now, isn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. I mean? so there's so many things change, but also what's changed is is, is the internet and it's kind of unleashed a lot of uh, uh, broadcasting. So uh, the key is now people getting to know what our the URL is rather than what time we're on. You know, so I, I don't think as many people listen live to us anymore. You know, really, I think it's mostly the uh, mostly via the net. How
0: do you feel about the state of underground radio in Britain at the moment? Online as obviously, I don't know how much you know about this, but kind of revolutionised things, I suppose. NTS, Reform Radio in Manchester, yeah. KMAH in Leeds. There are now a wealth of online stations. Are you aware of that? Do you think it's a good thing? Is there still something special about there being a, a BBC show on at a fixed time every week? On radio that people don't need to listen to online or do you see a little distinction between the two channels really
1: i, I don't know what we actually bring to that party i, I, I mean uh, i know there's a lot of internet radio and it's it doesn't have to be like in bradford or where i've got a mate who does a good show or resonance where there's a fantastic show done by a mate of man who, 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 who like features like uh, DJ Zoe Lucky Cat, she's fantastic. But I also listen to uh, WFMU. You know, if if I had a radio station to listen to it, that's that's where it would be. WFMU, I'd have that on all day. And Resonance is great. So there's so many, it doesn't have to be in this country, it's anywhere, it doesn't matter, it no no longer matters. If you're local, then by and large, you're going to listen to a local radio station. Station to find out what the weather's like on your next street, aren't you? <laughs> what, whatever. Usually, I just look at the window. You know, every everybody's a DJ now, aren't they? You know, I, th- I think the worst thing that's happened to DJ things over the years, actually, is celebrity DJs. I'd shoot them all. <laughs> I get because people are like just ordinary punters, like like me and you, you know. We, you know, we like our record. We, we, we try to develop over the years. You know, we got think, but we, we don't. We're not rock stars. You know, we're not actors. We're not whatever it is, cricketers. You know, whatever. You know, in the public eye. But all these people are coming. Oh, celebrity DJs. You know, and they get gigs, don't they? They get live gigs. They get gigs on radio. I mean. God love him, you know, Jarvis Cocker, you know, he's a nice chap, but you know, why should he be there? And uh, Guy Garvey is another one, you know, yeah, for every Guy Garvey, you've got a thousand people who love to have a radio gig, who've got as good a radio taste as he's got, but they can't do it, can they? You know, because they're not in a band, you know, it's like terrible. So that's my my main bugbear. I I think uh, good luck to all those other radio stations where people are actually doing what they can do. Say good luck to him we need to get rid of all these celebrity DJs on big stations, you know, like Six Music and all those kind of, uh, all those stations. That's my view.
0: Do you consider that you have a distinctive style? I'll describe what I think is attractive <laughs> about it and then you can disagree is this, or is this, agree.
1: Is this, this is going into psychoanalysis. No, section. no, not <laughs> at all.
0: Not at all. Um, it's intimate. I think you wear your music knowledge lightly. Mm. I think a lot of specialist, inverted commas, music shows often the presenters want to download a lot of information a lot of catalog numbers a lot of background info Mm. almost to prove their cred in that field you take a very different approach half the time you're struggling to remember things and generally it's about listen to this piece of music and the detail will sort itself out you know Mm. there's that aspect of it which I think is kind of welcoming it's not off-putting to new listeners and also your interaction with fanny particularly it is like two blokes nattering in the pub about what they've seen on telly and you know <laughs> what they've seen at the pictures yeah. there's no sense of kind of alienating cool around it you know it very much is either deliberately or accidentally about music enthusiasts sharing good music were you aware of that or is that just naturally how you would present yourself
1: it's naturally how I prevent myself i become aware of it over time so it's only when I become self-conscious that i be going to trip up and make mistakes or go to bloopers and, 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 and what have you people say there's uh, there's this thing in, in, in radio like you're just talking to one person and I, I think it's, uh, it's difficult to learn some tricks of the trade whereby you just actually do that you know If I listen to myself back from shows in the 80s, then I've got to admit, I think, and I know you're usually your own worst critic aren't you but I think I sound really gauche you know <laughs> unbearable really but people used to tell me I was good then you know <laughs> uh, people no longer tell me I'm good you know so I think it might have been encouraging to me and, and so what it is I, I, I Tony I'm afraid to say I can describe it in one short word age <laughs> I've aged so you've
0: become increasingly downbeat yeah. as the years have gone by.
1: Yeah. I have noticed, actually, over the past few years, I'm, I'm playing a lot more quieter quieter music and more reflective music now than I was uh, you know, <laughs> a, 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 a few years ago. That's not to say... Um, No, I I think there's not a lot of good loud music out there, actually. Perhaps there should be, you know, more. I'm I'm not talking kind of four to the floor stuff, you know, which you always get banging music, but what's the point of of that, you know? But, well, maybe it is. Maybe I just don't play it loud enough at home or something (laughs) like that. Well, let's
0: talk about your unusual, persistent enthusiasm (laughs) for new music then. So, firstly, one thing that has been the constant throughout. The decades has been this love of reggae, in particular dub reggae. I saw you describe it somewhere as the original rebel music. Explain that appeal to me then and explain why that kind of anchors what On the Wire is about.
1: Yeah, I I think that's central to reggae as as well. But I go back to something that uh, Dennis Bevel, who's like top gee, so Dennis, I wish he had, if he had a radio show, I'd listen to uh, Dennis Bevel. What a lovely guy. But he once said uh, the first dub tune was Jimi Hendrix's third stone from the sun, he said. I, I know what he's saying there. It's not just like the effects in it, but uh, how it makes you feel. And I think one of the most disappointing eras was the whole, kind of whole, whole era of uh, uh, psychedelia, because I don't think the music actually delivered the goods, you know, in, in terms of the, the pure sonics of, of it. There's only a few, a few. That sound like totally, totally different, and, uh, and and partially, especially electric. Ladyland. Jim Hendrix was one of those who made it f- feel like uh, totally, uh, totally different. So, when when I first started hearing dub, it was almost like, well hold on, This is what I should have been. This is the kind of stuff you should have been hearing previously. You know. The other thing is about dub. F- for any reggae fan, it's not having like a load of dub albums. It's like Knowing where the dubs originate from and being a familiarity with the original source music and how it's actually restructured, especially like very sweet like love tunes because like some of my favourite dubs are uh, oh for talking about Dennis Bovell, some of the uh, lovers rock stuff from the uh, late seventies early early eighties uh, by people like uh, Dennis my Professor and uh, Clem Boucher. I think he's probably my favourite. Uh, producer of, uh, of the time where you get this kind of contrast between a very sweet edge in the music which is uh, taken usually by say guitar licks re- retained from the original mix or the vocals retained from the uh, original mix and very open and kind of chasmic spaces so it's very very spacey music also if you actually listen to live, if you go to like dub gigs live, it's very very physical music, much more than any because of because of the separation of uh, of the sound, it has a much bigger impact on your bodily than say house or rock or any other kind of uh, uh, music. So you'll feel like your spine moving in and out when you're at it. When you're at it. Listen to a lot of uh, dub. I'm talking at a sound system because obviously you don't. there's Very few people play dub live unless you're talking about Adrian Sherwood or you know c- occasional other people. So th- those are some of the kind of those my reflections on, on on why I I started to like dub it is uh, and I, I suppose the headline is is sonically it's what I've been like look something I'd actually been looking for and missed. From what was promised in, the, in, in psychedelia.
0: You see the rebellion in it then as a lack of, of crowd pleasing, then, an unapologetic music which follows its own path without recourse or regard for spreading a populist. Enjoyments of it, really. Yeah, it yeah. Takes its yeah. own awkward path.
1: Well, it, well, it certainly, it, uh, it was largely playing to dub was also largely playing to a fairly closed audience, wasn't it? I mean, you didn't get many people wandering into sound system gigs, or many people wandering into blues dancers, did you? you? You know, that that's not what happened. And uh, if you heard it on radio, what? I mean, you can't hear it on radio, can you? I mean, I, I know I, I'm on radio and I play it through radio, but you've got to go take it away and play. it you know, in, in a, not in a tinny box. You know, in yeah. the car radio. I suppose sound systems are a lot better now at home and in the car and whatever. You, and you can hear it a lot better than you, you used to be able to hear it back in the seventies through like a little little trans- transistor. So, to some extent, it was hidden, wasn't it? It, it was outside of music. You know, you had to go and you had to go and look for it. You had to go and find it. It wasn't put on a plate for you. You know, had to work a little bit harder to find it. You know, and then you had to work a little bit harder to understand it. So to some extent, it, it was like a secret and a rebel music in in that sense. It was outside, certainly outside the mainstream.
0: Are those things you would have sought out in northern England as a punter? I mean, obviously, there was quite a big sound system culture in Huddersfield, bizarrely, and Manchester to an extent, and also Liverpool. Did you hunt out those things?
1: I didn't, actually, because I I was aware, and there wasn't much happening up here. In in fact, funnily enough, one of the first times I came across uh, Caribbean music, Was uh, I used to go to this pub in uh, Barraford, which is near Nelson, called the Georgian Dragon, and I went upstairs once, and they had a blue beat. I'd never seen they had a blue beat dance. I thought, what the fuck's going on? It was fantastic, you know. There were about fifteen people in, but these guys were like giving it some dance, you know, and uh, and. I've only ever seen that on film ever since, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But no, I, I, I didn't have transport, and, and I didn't have pe- I didn't have mates who were into the same kind of thing. So I, I, I trod a fairly lonely, a lonely path, lonely furrow.
0: Apart from your friendship with Adrian Shearwood, though, I presume that blossomed around your shared love of Dub. Did it then, or?
1: Well, it wasn't just Dub. It was, it, yeah, it was Dub, Dub was like a core, but uh, it was like discovery was the main thing. I think discovery is like the key, is another key word, isn't it? Discovering new stuff. And Adrian was certainly up for that and doing that. I remember he went to, he was going to that, is uh, it New Music? What was it? New Music Seminar, I think, in, in, in New York. And he says to me, "Steve, can you do me a hip hop tape? Because uh, I need to understand what's happening." So I did him a hip hop tape before he went to and did all notes on it, so he could bullshit his way through. <laughs> and that's where he met. That's where he met uh, Tom Silverman and Keith LeBlanc who just a Malcolm X. That's how it happened. And then after that, it was all like uh, the, the sampling, the sampling thing. You know, because who was, was obviously one of the first people who was doing. Doing samples, or or as we used to call it, then we we used to call it capture rather than uh, rather than samples. Uh, by abusing technology, that's another thing. Abuse of technology in, in music is what's moved music forward over the years, uh, and it's not just like technology in terms of gear. It's in, instrumentation. Is is abuse of the instrumentation, isn't it? I mean, that's classic. The blues musician, blues music, slide guitar. What's that? If it didn't like abuse of technology, yeah.
0: So there was something very new about what Tackhead were doing and what Adrian was doing that you were excited by fundamentally. Well, yeah, it mean, sonically uh, was unlike anything else that was happening at the time, wasn't it? In yeah, its Kind but, of industrial edge, yeah, but also those that kind of cavernous dub yeah. mass to it.
1: Well, what was great is, is I wasn't consuming that; I was almost like part of it because I was like naming stuff and I was bringing them samples and I was suggesting stuff to do in the studio and, and what have you. I was there at like Mick. I mean. I was there when Adrian like mixed uh, wrong name, wrong number, or you Yo Bastards by Mark Stewart, which is the most brutal piece of like dance music ever recorded. You know, still to this day, And a number of like Kethel Bank's first album, I was there when he, he he mixed that and a lot of the stuff through the eighties. Uh, so I was kind of part of that. You know,
0: so, so that came about how then? So Adrian was what a fan of your no, work, no, 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 or no, you no. kind of approached no. him to come and be on the show, and it no. grew from there.
1: No, what, what happened is uh, I come across that uh, one of his first albums, or uh, w- one of his albums on 4D rhythms, I think it was, uh, which is a precursor to On You Sound. And I was doing interviews then when I did uh, my other shows, because I had thousands of interviews, you know, with people who were happening at the time. But um, I was really like this, uh, this Creation Rebel album, and... Um, I think it was Starship Africa, actually. He had an office on Wimble Street. I rang him up I said, "Oh, well, can we do an interview? So I did an interview with him over the phone. This was like in 1979, 1980, something like that. And uh, then went to meet him. And uh, I met he- him and Kishi, his wife, at the time. And uh, we became friends, really. After that, and I used to stay with him when he got to London. And, went, and I used to go to London work a lot of time, but rather than having a hotel, I used to sleep at Southern Studios and... Uh, when Adrian used to record overnight and do mixing overnight then at Southern Studios.
0: So that was as close as you came to fulfilling your dreams of being a musician then, basically. Yeah. Being around that and having some input creatively creatively into it was your moment of... uh... That's right.
1: Um, Not so much uh, uh, these days, because it's a bit more difficult these days, but uh, a lot of samples for uh, Dub Syndicate and... uh, I named all the Little X albums and a lot of samples for Little X, which is like the blues dub kind of thing, mm. The Skip MacDonald. So I've, I've continued kind of the relationship right through. I mean, he introduced Adrian to Lee Perry as well mm. for to do those, because uh, he was working with my professor and all the profs great. You know, it wasn't right for what mm. Lee needed to come, like, come back and do something modern, you know, and that was like a time boom album. So... So, uh, yeah, I was a lot more kind of active. So you've
0: maintained that relationship on, a, as you say, a kind of active, creative level then up until the present day, basically.
1: Yeah, he keeps asking me to go down and play a gig down uh, (laughs) in in, uh, Ramsgate at Shantytown. Me, my age, you know, (laughs) take a few tunes down there.
0: Well, you say that about (laughs) your age. That was another thing on the website. There was that, uh, you know, pledge to age disgracefully, which hopefully you feel you are fulfilling. Do you ever reflect on how perhaps unusual it is for a man at 68 years old to be listening to kind of new bass and dubstep records and to be playing them on the radio and still to have that enthusiasm. And has that enthusiasm for new music, has it waned at times and has it come back or has it been a very constant thing in your life? It's
1: been rather constant and I I just wonder about how sad it is for people (laughs) to have their lives kind of closed off to music at a certain time because it's like some um, for most people, they have a music taste for a, a, a set period of time, don't they? And, and it's usually between around about 12, 13 through till about 24 or something like that 25 maybe at the outside and then they have that hermetically sealed, and that's what they like forever, isn't it? Really, they they don't stray. And I think you know, it's it's like well, you don't do that with the stuff, do you? You you know, you, uh, if you think about music and uh, compare it to uh, other elements of, uh, of of the arts, say visual arts, you don't you don't stop stop looking at paintings because you know after a certain you know I've I've stopped looking at painting actually Tony after you know 1964, you know, I thought <laughs> not much done good after that. You know, it's it's stupid, isn't it? And it's the same for for every other kind of artistic endeavour. You know, you've got to look at new stuff that's happening. And the proof of this is one kind of um, fairly healthy area of the... uh, Record business, shall we call it that? We probably can't anymore. But isn't no reissues, you know, that people have never heard. They you know, think, oh, it's fantastic. Have you heard this? Well, yeah, actually, I've heard it, you know. But, you know, people be, being able to discover stuff that they missed the first time around, and there seems to be a cycle of that. You know. I think it's just about eight between eight and ten years, you know, things are actually reissued every eight or ten years. And basically, it's, it's to cue into that kind of thing. I was saying you know, about people when they're interested in music. Yeah,
0: know. exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, what's the sense is stopping listening to music? Me. I mean, at home, I usually have radio, me and my wife usually have Radio 3 on most of the day because that's the best music station for, uh, uh, for me. And then I might go and listen to some other stuff, you know, or ever in the car. And, you know, it's some music generally around. But I'm not, like, tuning to WFMU in in New Jersey just to see what kind of freaky things they're playing, you know. I'm I'm not not doing that. I I don't listen to a lot of other radio... I I very rarely listen to any other music radio apart from uh, uh, Radio 3 and WFMU.
0: Are you one of those music fans who wakes up in the night sometimes... Keenly aware that you won't live long enough to explore all the music that you would like to, or have you kind of come to some kind of uh peace with this idea that you know you will end your days and you won't have explored I think you were talking about Javanese folk music and i was reading you, you probably won't get to explore that in as much detail as you would like.
1: yeah, but well you get to a point don't you where, where well you probably are not at this stage yet, Tony, but you look at all the books on your shelves and you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and and you look at all, <laughs> look at all the records on the shelves, and, but I, I see this as uh, hold on, you know, my son Max is uh, a bass player, and he's a, he's a really good player, and he's into like lots of different things, but basically he likes jazz, he likes funk, he's like, you know, he could be in like, Herbie Hancock's bass player, you know, in nineteen seventy three, be happy, you know, that that that's kind of what, so he's like he likes music. And so I've got a lot of stuff to hand on to him, you know. He, but uh, my grandson Billy, he loves reggae, so he's coming along as well, you know. So they're all coming. They're all. They're all coming along, you know.
0: So your family and friends don't regard you as some kind of freak, then? for having... I hope not. No. Catch up this <laughs> no. inverted commas childish interest, then. No, they share no. your enthusiasm. Luckily.
1: They do. They. They all love. Uh, they all love music. Yeah.
0: And you touched on this briefly before, but you were in China. I think it was two thousand and two to Yeah, two thousand and eleven. Yeah. So, just to explain for people, you were working for the British Council yeah. out there. Was that in a musical role? Because you ended no, up in, no. in musical projects,
1: didn't you? No, no, no. It wasn't a musical role. I was working as a uh, consultant on uh, uh, social policy. Right. Yeah, uh, but they did uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, project. One project I actually got. Involved. This is this is a kind of uh, uh, interesting story, uh, a solitary story really. For anybody who wants to run a project with a, a, an organisation, is this fellow was like stumbling around. He was the arts person. He was wondering what to do, you know. And I said, uh, "Why don't you do a Sounds of Beijing?" I said, uh, there's this guy now, Peter Cusack, who did Sounds of London? It was great, you know, a great album, and, and it's it'd be a brilliant one for Beijing, given it's developing and it's changing." And I said I'm sure I could get a couple of other people interested like uh, David Toop would be interested to come and... uh and I got another uh, friend, called, uh, 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 Clive Bell, who writes for the Wire. I'm sure he, he'd be interested. He's a musician as well. He, he could, we could, like. and so he picked it up and started run with him. And, and you know, give him credit. He, he ran with this and he got into British Council in, in London. They got he invited Brian Eno, and Eno said he'd come. That's another few stu- uh, This is another interview. This there's loads, I tell you. And uh, Robin Rambus, Scanner. So they all set up, you know. And it was, re- and they ran the, pro- they, they ran it, and it was a fantastic project sounds of Beijing there's a book and there's a CD and all that kind of stuff and they did the book uh, and by which time it was like getting on with work I mean I saw, I saw them all when they came uh, I was with Brian a few a few Brian Eno a few times and my old friend David said, it was really great you know it's good to be involved they wrote the book and never even mentioned my name in it <laughs> I mean I, the actual concept you know and and then I, I said I, i saw a draft i said what, what's this you, you know you haven't even mentioned and and if anybody reads this sounds of beijing i mean i'm in the thanks <laughs> I, I mean as it was you know it didn't like ruin my life you know but if you do need some credit you're gonna have to make sure you get credit that's yeah. what that's advice i would because otherwise people screw you over big style won't they, so dude?
0: sometimes you have to be Pushier than you might be by nature. Exactly. To uh, make sure your exactly. role in these things is acknowledged.
1: Yeah. And what's worse, as a mate of mine, who's like a great guy in called Yan Jun, a musician, he used to be a rock critic in, uh, in Lanzhou in, in in China, and now he's like an experimental musician and, and, and what have you, poet and, and what have you, brilliant. He, he kind of led on doing the book, and he hadn't realised. And I said to him, Yan Jun, you know, that. He's, he's he's a guy I did a, a, a dubstep gig with in nineteen what was it sorry right, two thousand and four or five his first dubstep gig in China. I was going to say we should <laughs> we
0: should explain here that whilst you're in China you continued to broadcast on the wire from yeah. China yeah and also you were doing sporadic club gigs out there. Yeah. Had it been in your mind in taking that job that it was an opportunity to get out and explore Chinese mm. music and did you or
1: not a, well. I mean, I, I didn't know I was going to be able to continue on The Wire, but we did, we made it work. I used to record stuff, and I used to do, like, half the show. And then I met a guy called Christian Verant, who was uh, a musician in, in a kind of a tech house outfit for, out of Hong Kong called FM3, who eventually, they became two of them, himself and a guy called uh, Zhang Zhen from... Uh, Sichuan province, whose dad was mouse clarinetist, by the way. Oh, he was off It, it, it could be a whole interview, i would tell you. And Christian went on to do the Buddha Machine, uh, FM3 went on to do the Buddha Machine, which uh, I don't know if you ever seen that. So, millions all over the world. You know, check it out on Boomcat or something like that. Right. But anyway, he, he kind of introduced me to a lot of, uh, Christian, because he'd been in China a long, long time, he introduced me to a lot of what was actually going on in, in, in Beijing. So I did like uh, a review in The Wire for the first kind of uh, electronic kind of avant-garde music festival in, uh, in Beijing uh, for The Wire, and then got got interested and got to know quite a number of people then I, started, I did quite because I kept getting tunes all the time I started doing a few little gigs uh, here and there then I started bringing some mates over to China and getting them gigs in clubs and, and, and what have you in Beijing and Shanghai but these, these were like people who still got I mean these were people like uh, Steve Goodman Code 9 primarily but lots of other people uh, So you
0: brokered through. Code Nine's introduction to China though. Yes so the Sino Grime stuff, then were you yeah. a key, again, unacknowledged influence on that?
1: I, I think I probably was because I, I, uh, Martin at uh, Key Records had a few samples <laughs> from me, but he was already into it. Martin, I give him credit. I, I think uh, Sino Grand prefigured my time in in China, but I, I did a, I did a bit there, you know. <laughs> Steve Goodman did sample a Lee, Lee Perry interview for one of his for one of his tenures on. 9 nine ten inches as well.
0: So you're one of the hidden sample libraries for modern producers, then. You are Connect the go-to down. man when they need yeah. that—that out-of-the-way sample that won't be found in any off-the-peg sample packs. Then
1: I've done it selectively, <laughs> Tony. I've done it selectively only. I don't—I don't want to be on demand supply. No.
0: <laughs> I mean, an obvious question in some ways, but I'm interested simply in what you are interested in at the moment. So, what areas? of music are you currently excited about and how regularly does that change i mean we talked about enthusiasm waning or not you say it doesn't but presumably you play very little hip hop for instance now your taste must change in, over time are yeah. there certain fields that you're particularly passionate about at the moment
1: it's one area that is defined by by genre these days and subgenre isn't it because uh, I, I notice you go to say like a, a great site and a great outlet for music, like uh, Boomcat, run by Shlomo, a like, really great guy who helped me a lot when I was in China because he sent me loads of tunes because I, I couldn't get hold of tunes otherwise, could I really? And you, you look at it and say, How are, how are we going to browse this by artist label? Genre. You did, you, you browse by genre. And I th- I think a lot of the music I'm interested in at the moment is is known as like modern. Sort of modern classic or, or listening, or uh, you know, amb- sometimes ambient, you know, modern composition, etc. A lot of that, and and a lot of uh, and, and I've always been interested in kind of drift and uh, drone music, and I think it's actually a strand that's largely unrecognized. Uh, drone, how much of an impact it's it, it's had over over the years, you know, from right from. Uh, velvet underground you know picking up from uh from their lamont young and and, and their influences right through to the modern day lots of uh, uh guitar bands are interested in in drone and come out as uh as big fans of drone so modern composition drone drift etc i'd love to be able to for people to like point to me some like really cool hip-hop you know but but generally I see it as, like, the odd bit here and there rather than... I, I'm most I'm interested in, in, in when things come through as, as some kind of collective movement. You know, mm. there's a few people doing things. Because there's always individuals doing something. Yeah. Because I was away from uh, UK, I kind of missed out on, on grime in, in, in a way. But I, I think the reason I missed out is because it, early on, grime tend to, tend to be dominated by what I was concerned is kind of inferior people with inferior rap skills. <laughs> yeah. And the kind of the whole kind of composition side of it I hadn't picked up and it and it's like much more advanced. Now it's fantastic now, some of the stuff now I mean, you couldn't even pigeonhole the music as grime, but it's it's called grime. And it's wonderful. Like a lot of good music now, it also has resonances back into house, you know, that, that, that early techno. Uh, certainly, a lot of the grime has uh, has has resonance back into uh, uh, early techno, but you wonder how, how how much you know some of this music can, how much it is it is a genre or a sub sub genre uh, like footwork, for, for instance. Because I found it difficult. I found some of it like great, and others found it really difficult to. I think, what is this? You know, <laughs> is it something? Is it that thing that's. Finally creeping up on me. <laughs> I can't get my head around it. But then it's rescued by, you know, the odd, odd, odd like rashad or something. I thought, oh, that's great.
0: You know? You're not compelled to love everything, are you? No, I'm not. I, Simply I, because it's new and challenging. No.
1: And the other thing is I've found, given that you're getting me to confess things, I can put a good a, a programme together, I think, very, very quickly. When I was trying to be a journalist, what you used to do, and I still love to be able to do this, but I can't afford it anymore. You used to get all the papers, and you get all, every paper, and you used to go through, and you used to have to do analysis and in like half an hour about what the key themes were, and blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you, you analyze the press. And I, I kind of tried to carry that skill through into, into music, and and, uh, and I can listen to stuff like that really, really quickly. and said, that's like top track, that. And so I think I might, I think it might be... Deceiving people up by playing like really cool tracks from albums that only got one good one good track on it, you know. But then you think back and you think about some of the great albums. You think, well, it was a great album, but it only had like four killer tunes on it, you know.
0: That's an interesting point that you make there because that ability to choose the best, the 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 essential tracks from those albums, Mm. is is a skill in itself. If you can do it quickly, all the better. Yeah. However, particularly now, when we're all inundated with music. Do you feel that role as a guide and a curator is more important than ever? I feel there was a period just when, when everything took off online, there was this sense that, oh, this is brilliant. It's really democratic. We've all got access to everything. I feel yeah. your role is more important than ever now, though, precisely because we're inundated.
1: Yeah, I think you've hit on, on, on a key thing for me, and that is one of uh, access, because my... my a long time ago, I used to think the, the real issue here that we've got is access. We haven't got access to anything, you know. I, I mean, wh- when I was, like, listening to country blues, started listening to country blues when I was in the teens, you know, I, I read about this stuff and I, I read about this stuff and I couldn't get it. I can't find it anywhere. And now you can get the most obscure blues singer and you can download it for nothing probably, you know. And, and so, you know, that that's just the example for everything because everything's like that. And it's like I said before when I was talking about celebrity DJs, everybody's a DJ. You know, everybody... So, well, of course, you can be a DJ. But basically, you, you need... So I've, so I've changed my mind, basically. Access isn't... Too much access is the issue now because people can't actually begin to make, you know, proper uh, judgments. You know, people... You know, taste comes in. It's like, you know, you need... To, it's like what what one thing I hate an expression is is oh uh, I don't like that I don't like impressionism or I don't like expressionism or I don't like you know uh, 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 what one school but I just like or well, no you know uh, no you don't because you don't know it we need education you know we need visual education and we need auditory you know oral education as much as we need visual education people don't know what they like because they've not been Stuff's not been explained to them. They think it's it's a natural thing. So I don't like that. You know, I don't like you know visually, and I don't like that because they they're not trained to actually understand it. I also say I ne- I don't like opera, I hate opera, you know. <laughs> horrible. And Missy's going to opera, and she told me to I, I love you know. I, there's like some operas now. She, I, love, I think I people love, are very yeah.
0: fearful, aren't they nowadays? Of Appearing pompous and a, people are very wary of presenting themselves as authorities. I think yeah. in anything yeah. because it's felt that somehow that there's a snobbery around that mm. idea that you would be learned in a field and other people aren't, particularly in something, particularly in the popular arts like music.
1: Yeah.
0: But again, you know, it needs in a way, doesn't it? somebody with your knowledge and background in dub reggae, if I don't know anything about dub reggae, to come to you and say, right, where do I go? Yeah, because really, those fields are. Unnavigable without somebody like yourself, there kind of to show some guidance, aren't they?
1: I mean, I think that's what we're doing a little little bit. We're we're sifting through a lot of uh, nonsense, but there's so much stuff out there, Tony. It's just, it's not a sea of stuff, it's like multiple, you know, oceans of, it's like David Toop said, ocean of sound. It's like, it's all like they're making a noise, isn't it? You know. And swimming through that is—you would certainly drown, would not you? Really. <laughs> <laughs> really. So uh, one thing I don't do is I don't—I I, I very rarely ring anybody up and ask for music anymore.
0: No, but I imagine that is probably unnecessary on many levels,
1: isn't it? Well, I, I do it on on the odd occasion, but I do buy tunes, you know, because I think oh, I can't be asked, you know, <laughs> actually trying to find this, trying to find where this person is, you know. And I, 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 uh, I thought something the other day. I, I thought I, I get this stuff from uh, this label called uh, Blackest Ever Black. Do you know?
0: Oh yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And I think it's a really great label. Black. I think they do some really interesting stuff, but it's not cohesive. You know, it's the only cohesion it's got is its interest in music. Sure. You know? yeah. yeah. And and so I wrote to Kieran, who sends me the stuff. I said, okay, just have interest, Kieran. You know, which of the radio stations play this stuff in in the UK? He says. Oh, I don't know, Steve, really. <laughs> he said, none of them. It's just, you know, you asked me for something. Resonance plays it now and again, but I don't. I thought, what's happening? You know, and and I'm thinking, well, who plays Pan? You know, another great like, yeah, label yeah. Uh, of of the past. And, uh, uh, and I read a piece on them the other day on the net. They've seen it as not just music, is it? It, it fits into a lot of... Other kind of art forms as, sure. as, as well, and I think that's perhaps that's that's the way ahead for, for uh, now, especially with uh, more exciting things coming on visually, not just looking at books. You know, it, uh, becoming interactive on the, on the net and the whole kind of uh, virtual reality thing in you know, about time. To, God, you know, you know, what? What we're going to do? You know, we're going to have virtual reality creations of Robert Johnson, you know, performing in our living room, you know, something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's there, isn't it? It's, it's Sadly, gonna, it's going to happen, isn't it?
0: Sadly, probably. <laughs> um, in terms of this wider audience you have now online, what feedback do you get, and is that kind of key to maintaining your interest in all this? The sense that you are turning people onto things which otherwise they wouldn't have heard, or is it kind of its own rewarding that? whilst you've still got that enthusiasm it's just natural to share new and interesting things
1: yeah i, I think you know getting some feedback is almost a byproduct we do it anyway you know because we 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 know it's we know what we're confident in in, mm. in in what we the music that we're playing should be played i mean, it's interesting jim did a thing interesting thing the other week you know, he he did a 25 hour dub techno oh, yeah. loop yeah. and he got like, we just put it on mixcloud you know mixcloud you know you, you get a lot of numbers but it's over time you got like 1,500 people all from Germany listen to it <laughs> within a week. <laughs> it's like incredible, you know. Uh, so these things happen, but we, we're not particularly concerned for approbation from uh, people, but uh, it's it's nice if it comes.
0: So 40 years, is that the aim? Have you put a number on it, or is it a case of you'll do this till you drop, and then you'll hand over the baton?
1: Well, I think we've yeah, I think we've got the sonic barricades up, so it's who's going to assail these sonic barricades. <laughs> I mean, it be great, wouldn't it? If, if, if we're not in a situation where, you know, I've, I've got like a, a bunch of 30-year-olds or a bunch of 20-year-olds or teenagers knocking at the door, oh, we should be doing programs like this. You know, the, it, I mean, that, to some extent, that used to be able to happen a, a, a little bit uh on the bbc but it doesn't anymore i i i think maybe when programs like on the wire go the, you know they'll go and the, you know nobody else will come i mean remember when peel went oh yeah john's gone n- now so we could do our best robbed a bank what, what happened to him you know i mean it it didn't so basically what is what's so this is a thing of mine really with john they haven't done the best by him, really, because basically they're keeping him alive by other means, aren't they? By having John, John Peel days and stuff like that. Well, this. as you
0: say, he's been canonised, and been, the actual he, importance of what he did has been completely forgotten. ignored.
1: Yeah, exactly. So they have these John Peel days, John, John Peel you know, at Glastonbury, blah, 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 blah. John Peel would have preferred to get somebody who's like 25, who's got a totally open attitude to music, who can express themselves relatively okay, and let them play it. 12 o'clock at night for two hours and let them grow. You know, what's the problem? But no, we've got, you know, Radio on Urban, One Extra, blah, blah, you know, all this kind of six music, blah, blah. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Well, I was going
0: to say, I mean, you know, for you, there'd probably be lots of music on One Extra that you would like. Yeah. But then, you know, there is lots of music there that you don't like. And and again, we're losing those spaces where there could be crossovers from those different cultural areas and, you know, people from different backgrounds and classes and... You know, racial backgrounds geographically around the world, which yeah. shows like yours and John's, there was a levelling of that. You know, there yeah. was no hierarchy yeah. in terms of where people came from or what colour they were mm. or what the background was. It was purely about the music they made and whether that was powerful and that was, there was a progressive sense to that and as there still is with on the wiring yeah there's no demographic basically no there's there, no demographic
1: there's there, there's there is no demographic it, how dangerous is that for you there is no demographic <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: well more power to your elbow uh, thanks very much Tim.
1: thank you all.